0: You know, one of the beautiful things about meeting people for having conversations on radio, especially K2H, is the connectivity that you find in different people. And today I have a wonderful guest who's been on before talking about the moon cycle, but today Natasha's here to talk about her, her (laughs) and her connection to me in a strange way through, um, African-American history and Chinese American history, which I will unpack slowly, but also in light of coming Juneteenth and also just being an African-American woman in Hawaii and what that means. So that's a lot I threw out there, but uh, let's see where it flows and welcome, welcome Natasha Durden to K2H again.
1: Hi, good afternoon, thank you for having me.
0: Natasha, you know, it's so strange in this COVID world that I've met you and I feel like I've known you for a while, but we've only met each other virtually. How that I feel the
1: same. I feel the exact same way. It's kind of funny how personalities kind of connect. But I think when you're out there and you have your people and you meet your people, it 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 comes together. So that's kind of what it is. We all have our people out there. It's just meeting each other, and once we meet each other, everything flows. So I totally yeah. feel what you're willing to do
0: yeah yeah no i and thank you for this because i know this is a hard time for you you are um, having family issues and you're in california no are you in california you're in i I'm, Calif-
1: right? I'm still here in california yes it is it's triple digits <laughs> but i'm in california yes
0: okay okay so just to let people know that we are talking you know across the oceans but we're connected here in in spirit and in womanhood and i wanted to talk to you where do we begin? You know, because originally I wanted to talk about your work, you know, working in the, in the prisons, which is really yes. interesting. We'll, yes. Maybe we'll get to that. But somehow Absolutely. let's talk. You know what intrigued me the first time is that you once said when you had when you were pregnant with your son, you said you needed to find a place where you could bring him up in, in a in a world. Well, let's let you iterate that. How, what did you say about why you chose Hawaii for a place to grow up for your son? Well, I moved to Hawaii, I think in 94,
1: 95, I was only here. I'm gonna say here, cause I still live there for five years. I managed to, um, I married a man who was in the Navy and um, finished my degree. He was never home. I finished my degree. I had a full-time job working and I fell in love with Hawaii immediately. And um, a lot of mil- female military spouses hate it. They stay in their bubble. They don't explore. They don't meet anyone local. They don't try the food. They stay in that little radius of the commissary, the exchange, and that's pretty much it. They don't Why? do anything. Why do you think that is? Fear. Fear. Because with my with my um my other job, I I um we'll get to that. That's a whole nother <laughs> episode. Um it it's fear. And um I think a lot of um people that come here, and I'm non-people of color, they become the disenfranchised group. And it, it, I think it throws them for a loop. Um, but I fell in love with the place immediately. And I think the reason it helped me is because I started working with locals immediately. And they were the ones that showed me the islands. They were the ones that showed me the real Hawai'i, not the ones that you see on TV with the luau and the, the yeah. other stuff. They showed me the real, you know, how the islands really are and um I fell in love with it so when it was time for me to leave in 98 after I graduated I was devastated what were you studying I I was um educational psychology okay cool yes I was devastated but I knew it was time for me to go move back to California my husband was stationed in San Diego so I moved to Rancho Cucamonga and Rancho Cucamonga it looks the way it sounds (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> see
1: <laughs> it's a lot more developed now but I was in the middle of a desert it was uh there was a shopping center across the street there's always a target and um Thank I was God, in the middle there was there was a, a townhouse complex and the shopping center and that was it and about two months after I came back to California I discovered I was pregnant and I was like, oh, damn, oh, darn. <laughs> <Yeah. Okay>. <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> and, um, and, you know, I, I had no plans on, on, on getting pregnant. It just, it kind of happened. Yeah, so, um,
0: kind of that spiritual thing. It, it just, <laughs> just kind of happened. So
1: um, I knew, I knew, you know, and, and I dealt with a difficult pregnancy. Oh. So I, I remember when I was delivering him, And I was in the delivery room and I saw this beautiful, beautiful being that I created. And I wanted him to have the best life possible. And he was a boy. I mean, it didn't matter if it was a boy or a girl. All I knew is that I needed to get back to Hawaii. That was it. I needed to get back to Hawaii. Um, And Hawaii does create, there are many challenges, but I knew I needed to raise him there. And the reason, the main reason there is because I wanted to raise a free black boy. I wanted him to be able to not have any issues with the police or being out at night or just being him, you know, um, or just being pulled over or, or, or accosted or stopped just for being a black male. And that was my main intention. I also had other intentions because I had, I made wonderful friends here and wonderful connections, but I wanted him to be able to be free and, and just be himself and grow. Okay. and we came back about he was almost 2 and i was able he was able to have that experience
0: so let's so, let, let's put that on pause because that's a huge yeah. that that's huge because first of all me mm-hmm. growing up asian american first of all you know when i have kids that's not the first thing that comes to my mind right i don't think about the potential dangers yes. of my offsprings mm-hmm. so this puts a very specific thing on 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 your community and what that means and where you're coming from that, that forces you to think about these things in, in your major decisions in life of where to live and thrive. And this is just, it's so understated. So can we, can you go a little bit back further, like maybe how you grew up and what shaped you and how these things perpetuated this kind of dangers or potential dangers? Yeah.
1: I was fortunate. I grew up in Ladera Heights and um, if anybody you know knows of their heights, it's i i had I grew up in a very wonderful neighborhood. I had a very wonderful life growing up, and um they called it the Black Beverly Hills. <laughs> you look it up it's so yeah. i grew up I grew up very um, I don't want to say sheltered, but I knew what was out there, and right around ninety two I believe it was. Um, around the time it was the Rodney King verdict. We always heard about police brutality and everything, but the Rodney King verdict put everything in perspective. And to watch that video of how the police were brutalizing this man, he was already on the sidewalk and they were taking turns beating him with their batons and brutalizing him. um, That was huge. That was my first, I think you hear about it. I had a father that grew up in the South And he would tell me things that he experienced. And I had a mother who grew up in the South and things that she experienced. And that that was all oral history. And I was able to see things for myself. And I was probably 20, maybe 20 when I saw it. And the older people in my life, the elders in my life, they were like, this is what's been, this is what happens in the South. This is what's going on. But I was able to look at it and it was, it was terrifying it so was terrifying. You
0: knew this history, you know, uh, yes. uh, this this the suppression and 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 you know the the legacy of all this. But seeing it and having that impact that that changed things for you. Is that what you are
1: saying? It changed things for me. And I remember I was actually waiting for the verdict to happen, and I had to go to work. And I said, "Well, I'll hear about it on the radio, or I'll have a friend that'll you know that'll call me at work." This was before cell phones, before the internet. Oh, but it
0: wasn't that long ago. Was- no, we didn't have cell phones not- in 92. Oh gosh, yeah, right. <laughs>
1: it was crazy, yeah. huh? We had beepers. Oh yeah, I had one of those. <laughs> <laughs> we had beepers.
0: Yeah, 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 yeah. We didn't okay. have
1: a cell phone. Okay, so, you're right, you're and, right. we had, and we had an answering machines. So you didn't know what went went on until you got home and checked your answer machine with the full cassette tape. So, <laughs> I knew that I would eventually hear about the verdict. And I get to work and my boss is like, "Go home." And I lived close enough where I was able to walk to work. I worked at a Chinese restaurant at the time. And, I my, I, you know, my life has been so interesting. So he goes, Mr. Mong he goes, he goes, go home. And I'm like, well, why? He goes, they just announced the verdict. Everything that is happening maybe may kind of come up towards us. So go home. And that's what I did. I went home.
0: Wait, so your Chinese boss at the Chinese restaurant that you worked at also recognized the the potential danger that this was Absolutely. going to spark.
1: Absolutely. Wow. Absolutely. I get into work and he told, he go home. So I didn't think it was as serious as it was, you know, and I, I knew the verdict was wrong. I knew it was incorrect, but I did not know what would happen in my neighborhood. I didn't know what was going to happen in LA. I did not know it would be that big. As in and- your
0: lifetime, you haven't experienced anything no. kind of so explosive in your own immediate vicinity, right?
1: Not at all. My parents told me about the the Watts riots before they yeah. they experienced the Watts riots. And, um, I heard the stories and everything, but I did not think it was going to come as close as it did. Okay. So, um, it happened and it gave me a lot of time to think. So that was when the, the people in my generation, we were able to have this dialogue about what was happening and what was going on. And it really affected me. It hurt, it hurt me. Yeah. So, um, and you know, as the years go by, you see how things were with black men, black people, yeah. but primarily black men and their relationship with the police, with law enforcement. Mm-hmm. And um, it scared me, it yeah. scared me. And I think I, for me, I had a little bit of, uh, I don't know what to even call it. I wasn't as fearful for myself as I was for the black men in my life. Like my brother, my brother experienced it firsthand. So there were things he experienced, the police following him home from work, the, the police following him, him from the store, not knowing why do you live here? You don't live in this house. This is in your neighborhood. Following him home and him being on the corner handcuffed until so oh. my parents came home to say, this is our son. He lives here. This is our home. So I saw this through my brother and there've been other experiences where the police have followed him home. And I was, I was sad for him. My heart ached for him. Mm -hmm. And I honestly didn't realize this was what he was going to encounter for a good part of his life. You know, it, this kind of, it's kind of how it was. And, you know, I had a father who parents whom, taught us how to surrender to the police. If the police pull you over or stop you, you stop. You don't ask any questions.
0: So growing up, your parents actually had this kind of, you know, sit down, talk with you. You grew up knowing that those are kind of the ways you dealt with potential situations with the police. Absolutely. My wow. father,
1: I remember him very vividly teaching my brother how to stand, oh. how not to make any sudden movements, how to get on the knees with his hands behind his back and submit to the police.
0: That, yes. That's crazy. You know, sorry, for, so for yes. my oh,
1: perspective, no. right? I understand. I understand. You
0: know, being from a very insular Chinese-American, well, you know, my dad's from Hong Kong and my mom's from the States, but I, I grew up in, in partly in San Francisco and part in Hong Kong, but I've never come to, and, and I think this is the problem with the Afro-Asian tension that's going on now, is that we don't understand each other's history enough and we're not willing to see or listen to it. And Absolutely. We think, I agree. okay, you know, we see like all the, the bad experiences like, oh, I was robbed. So I have this, uh, you know, discriminating perspective on, on, on certain people. So then it kind of digs deeper and deeper into that perpetual kind of reinforcing, like how you feel, you want to feel about another community. Mm-hmm. So, um, it, it. I wanted to go back to you working at the Chinese restaurant, if you don't mind, (laughs) because, you know, I I told you I'm doing a documentary on the Chinese in the South. And and I was reading some research and, you know, the Chinese stores um, back then had hired uh, black um, errand boys or whatever to do their work. And this is like in the 30s. Absolutely. So there's a really interesting relationship. Um, within the two communities and what it reveals about the larger white community.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. So talk
0: about that experience. Why do you think they hired you and what was, <laughs> how
1: did you feel about that? You know, I know why they hired me. They needed a black face and that was okay because we were in a, you know, primarily, you know, um, upper middle class black neighborhood and that's fine. And I had a friend, I was working, I was actually, this. Is, believe it or not, I was working for Guns and Roses. <laughs> what? <That's- laughs> <laughs> and okay. I, I was working for guns and roses and we're doing, a friend, hmm? we're doing what the whole fan like the the fan stuff that came <laughs> in and whenever okay. there was an award show um we were like the, the seat fillers we were coming and when guns and roses would come out they'd have us in the pit we'd have to scream and pretend that we were like loving <laughs> the show that kind of stuff okay. so um my friend called she goes um, do you think you want another job? And I'm like, I like money. So what are you talking about? She goes, there's this Chinese restaurant and my sister works there and she has to leave. And I'll go, where is it? And she told me, I said, I know that place that's down the street from my house. She goes, well, come in later on today and talk to the managers and you're good. So I, get, I the, the, Thomas and, there, that wasn't, Thomas and Francis Ma. I went in, I spoke to them for about five minutes. They're like, you're hired. And I'm like, okay, when do I start? So that lasted for seven years and they treated me like family. I love working with them. I love- Wait, hold that
0: thought because this idea of treating like family, I'm skeptical because I hear that a lot, but I don't know how- True. It rings. I mean, I guess I've seen both sides of it. Okay, wait, hold on. Let's take a quick break. We'll come back and we'll talk about this really interesting dynamics between African-American communities and Chinese communities or Asian for that matter, because you're talking about Rodney King. And I'm thinking back to the riot days, Natasha Harlan. And we're going to have to talk about all that stuff, right? Okay. Yes. Okay. We will be back. Don't go away. It's a very important conversation. You know, one of the beautiful things about meeting people for having conversations on radio, especially K2H, is the connectivity that you find in different people. And today I have a wonderful guest who's been on before talking about the moon cycle, but today Natasha's here to talk about her, her (laughs) and her connection to me in a strange way through, um, African-American history and Chinese American history, which I will unpack slowly, but also in light of coming Juneteenth and also just being an African-American woman in Hawaii and what that means. So that's a lot I threw out there, but uh, let's see where it flows and welcome, welcome Natasha Durden to K2H again.
1: Hi, good afternoon, thank you for having me.
0: Natasha, you know, it's so strange in this COVID world that I've met you and I feel like I've known you for a while, but we've only met each other virtually. How's that? I feel the
1: same. I feel the exact same way. It's kind of funny how personalities kind of connect. But I think when you're out there and you have your people and you meet your people, it 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 comes together. So that's kind of what it is. We all have our people out there. It's just meeting each other. And once we meet each other, everything flows. So I totally feel what you're willing to do.
0: Yeah. Yeah. No, I, and thank you for this because I know this is a hard time for you. You are um, having family issues and you're in California. No, are you in California? You're in LA,
1: California. I'm still here in California. Yes. It is. It's triple digits, (laughs) but I'm in California. Yes.
0: Okay. Okay. So just to let people know that we are talking, you know, across the oceans, but we're connected here in in spirit and in womanhood and i wanted to talk to you where do we begin? You know, because originally I wanted to talk about your work, you know, working in the, in the prisons, which is really yes. interesting. And well, yes. Maybe we'll get to that. But somehow Absolutely. let's talk. You know what intrigued me the first time is that you once said when you had when you were pregnant with your son, you said you needed to find a place where you could bring him up in, in a in a world. Well, let's let you iterate that. How, what did you say about why you chose Hawaii for a place to grow up for your son? Well, I moved
1: to Hawaii, I think in 94, 95, I was only here. I'm going to say here, cause I still live there for five years. I managed to, um, I married a man who was in the Navy and um, finished my degree. He was never home. I finished my degree. I had a full-time job working and I fell in love with Hawaii immediately. And um, a lot of mil- female military spouses hate it. They stay in their bubble they don't explore, they don't meet anyone local, they don't try the food, they stay in that little radius of the commissary, the exchange and that's pretty much it. They don't Why? do anything. Why? Why do you think that is? Fear. Fear because with my with my um my other job, I I um we'll get to that. That's a whole <laughs> another episode. Um it it's fear. And um I think a lot of um people that come here, and I'm non-people of color, they become the disenfranchised group. And it, it I think it throws them for a loop. Um, But I fell in love with the place immediately. And I think the reason it helped me is because I started working with locals immediately. And they were the ones that showed me the islands. They were the ones that showed me the real Hawaii, not the ones that you see on TV with the luau and the, yeah. the other stuff. They showed me the real, you know, how the islands really are and um I fell in love with it so when it was time for me to leave in 98 after I graduated I was devastated what were you studying I I was um educational psychology okay cool yes I was devastated but I knew it was time for me to go move back to California my husband was stationed in San Diego so I moved to Rancho Cucamonga and Rancho Cucamonga it looks the way it sounds (laughs) it's a lot more developed now but i was in the middle of a desert it was uh there was a shopping center across the street there's always a target and um i was in the middle there was there was a, a townhouse complex and the shopping center and that was it and about two months after i came back to california i discovered i was pregnant and I was like, oh, damn, oh, darn. <laughs> <Yeah. Okay>. <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> and, um, and, you know, I, I had no plans on, on, on getting pregnant. It just, it kind of happened. Yeah, so, um,
0: kind of that spiritual thing. It, it just, <laughs> just kind of
1: happened. So um, I knew, I knew, you know, and, and I dealt with a difficult pregnancy. Oh. So I, I remember when I was delivering him, And I was in the delivery room and I saw this beautiful, beautiful being that I created. And I wanted him to have the best life possible. And he was a boy. I mean, it didn't matter if it was a boy or a girl. All I knew is that I needed to get back to Hawaii. That was it. I needed to get back to Hawaii. Um, And Hawaii does create, there are many challenges, but I knew I needed to raise him there. And the reason, the main reason there is because I wanted to raise a free black boy. I wanted him to be able to not have any issues with the police or being out at night or just being him, you know, um, or just being pulled over or, or, or accosted or stopped just for being a black male. And that was my main intention. I also had other intentions because I had, I made wonderful friends here and wonderful connections, but I wanted him to be able to be free and, and just be himself and grow. and. We came back about, he was almost two, and I was able, he was able to have that experience.
0: So let's, so, let, let's put that on pause because that's a huge, yeah. That that's huge. Because first of all, me mm-hmm. growing up Asian American, first of all, you know, when I have kids, that's not the first thing that comes to my mind, right? I don't think about the potential dangers yes. of my offsprings. Mm-hmm. So this puts a very specific thing on on, on your community and what that means and where you're coming from that that forces you to think about these things in, in your major decisions in life of where to live and thrive. And this is just, it's so understated. So can we can you go a little bit back further, like maybe how you grew up and what shaped you and how these things perpetuated this kind of dangers or potential dangers? Yeah. I
1: was fortunate. I grew up in Ladera Heights. And um, if anybody, you know, knows that their heights, it's, I, I had, I grew up in a very wonderful neighborhood. I had a very wonderful life growing up and um, they called it the Black Beverly Hills. <laughs> you look it up. It's so yeah. I grew up, I grew up very, um, I don't want to say sheltered, but I knew what was out there. And right around 92, I believe it was Um, around the time it was the Rodney King verdict. We always heard about police brutality and everything, but the Rodney King verdict put everything in perspective. And to watch that video of how the police were brutalizing this man, he was already on the sidewalk and they were taking turns beating him with their batons and brutalizing him. um, That was huge. That was my first, I think you hear about it. I had a father that grew up in the South And he would tell me things that he experienced. And I had a mother who grew up in the South and things that she experienced. And that that was all oral history. And I was able to see things for myself. And I was probably 20, maybe 20, when I saw it. And the older people in my life, the elders in my life, they were like, this is what's been, this is what happens in the South. This is what's going on. But I was able to look at it and it was, it was terrifying. It so was terrifying. You
0: knew this history, you know, yes. uh, this the this, suppression this and, 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 you know, the, the legacy of all this, but seeing it and having that impact, that, that changed things for you, is that what you're saying? It
1: changed things for me. And I remember I was actually waiting for the verdict to happen and I had to go to work. And I said, well, I'll hear about it on the radio or I'll have a friend that'll, you know, that'll call me at work. This was before cell phones, before the internet. Oh, but it wasn't
0: that long ago.
1: Was no, we didn't have cell phones in '92.
0: Oh gosh, yeah, right. <laughs> it was crazy, huh? We had beepers. Oh yeah, I had one of those.
1: <laughs> we had beepers. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. A okay, so, you're right, you're right. We didn't have cell phones, so and we had an answering machines. So you didn't know what went, went on until you got home and checked your answer machine with the full cassette tape. So <laughs> I knew that I would eventually hear about the verdict. And I get to work, and my boss is like, "Go home." And I lived close enough where I was able to walk to work. I worked at a Chinese restaurant at the time. I and, my, I, you know, my life has been so interesting. So he goes, Mr. Mong he goes, he goes, go home. And I'm like, well, why? He goes, they just announced the verdict. Everything that is happening may, be, may kind of come up towards us. So go home. And that's what I did. I went home.
0: Wait, so your Chinese boss at the Chinese restaurant that you worked yeah. at also recognized the the potential danger that this was Absolutely. going to spark. Absolutely.
1: Wow. Absolutely. I get into work and he told, he go home. So I didn't think it was as serious as it was, you know, and I, I knew the verdict was wrong. I knew it was incorrect, but I did not know what would happen in my neighborhood. I didn't know what was going to happen in LA. I did not know it would be that big. As in and your
0: lifetime, you haven't experienced anything kind of so explosive in your own immediate vicinity, right?
1: Not at all. My parents told me about the, the Watts riots before they, yeah. they experienced the Watts riots. And, um, I heard the stories and everything, but I did not think it was going to come as close as it did. Okay. So, um, it happened and it gave me a lot of time to think. So that was when the, the people in my generation, we were able to have this dialogue about what was happening and what was going on. And it really affected me. It hurt, it hurt me. Yeah. So, um, and you know, as the years go by, you see how things were with black men, black people, yeah. but primarily black men and their relationship with the police, with law enforcement. Mm-hmm. And um, it scared me, it yeah. scared me. And I think I, for me, I had a little bit of, uh, I don't know what to even call it. I wasn't as fearful for myself as I was for the black men in my life. Like my brother, my brother experienced it firsthand. So there were things he experienced, the police following him home from work, the, the police following him, him from the store, not knowing why do you live here? You don't live in this house. This is in your neighborhood, following him home and him being on the corner handcuffed. until so oh. my parents came home to say, this is our son. He lives here. This is our home. So I saw this through my brother. And there have been other experiences where the police have followed him home. And I was I was sad for him. My heart ached for him. Mm-hmm. And I honestly didn't realize this was what he was going to encounter for a good part of his life. You know, this it, kind of it's kind of how it was. And, you know, I had a father who parents who taught us how to surrender to the police. If The police pull you over or stop you. You stop. You don't ask any questions.
0: So growing up, your parents actually had this kind of, you know, sit down, talk with you. You grew up knowing that those were kind of the ways you dealt with potential situations with the police.
1: Absolutely. My father, I remember him very vividly teaching my brother how to stand, how not to make any sudden movements, how to get on the knees with his hands behind his back and submit to the police.
0: That, yeah. That's crazy. You know, sorry. for So for yeah. my oh, perspective, no. right, I understand, I understand. You know, being from a very insular Chinese American. Well, you know, my dad's from Hong Kong and my mom's from the States, but I, I grew up in, in partly in San Francisco and part in Hong Kong. But I've never come to. And, and I think this is the problem with the Afro-Asian tension that's going on now is that we don't understand each other's history enough and we're not willing to see or listen to it. And Absolutely. We think, okay, you know, we see like all the, the bad experiences like, oh, I was robbed. So I have this, uh, you know, discriminating perspective on, on, on certain people. So then it kind of digs deeper and deeper into that perpetual kind of reinforcing, like how you feel, you want to feel about another community. Mm-hmm. So, um, it, it. I wanted to go back to you working at the Chinese restaurant, if you don't mind, <laughs> because you know I, I told you I'm doing a documentary on the Chinese in the South, and and yeah. I was reading some research, and you know the Chinese stores um, back then had hired uh, black um, errand boys or whatever to do their work, and this is like in the 30s, absolutely. Know? So there's a really interesting relationship. Um, within the two communities, and what it reveals about the larger white community.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. So talk
0: about that experience. Why do you think they hired you, and what was? <laughs> how did you feel about that?
1: You know, I know why they hired me. They needed a black face, and that was okay because we were in a, you know, primarily, you know, um, upper middle class black neighborhood, and that's fine. And I had a friend. I was working. I was actually, this, believe it or not, I was working for Guns and Roses. <laughs> what? Was, <laughs> and okay. I, I was working for Guns N' Roses. And we're doing, a friend, what? Hmm? We're doing what? The whole fan, like the, the fan stuff that came <laughs> in. And whenever <laughs> there was an award show, um, we were like the, the seat fillers. We were coming in and when Guns and Roses would come out, they'd have us in the pit. We'd have to scream and pretend that we were like loving <laughs> the show, that kind of stuff. Okay. So um my friend called, and she goes, um, do you think you want another job? And I'm like, I like money. So what are you talking about? She goes, there's this Chinese restaurant and my sister works there and she has to leave. And I go, where is it? And she told me, I said, I know that place that's down the street from my house. She goes, well, come in later on today and talk to the managers and you're good. So I get, I, the, the, Thomas and there, that wasn't, Thomas and Francis Ma, I went in, I spoke to them for about five minutes. They're like, you're hired. And I'm like, okay, when do I start? So that lasted for seven years and they treated me like family. I love working with them. I love- hey, Wait, with hold people.
0: that thought because yes. this idea of treating like family, I'm skeptical because I hear that a lot, but I don't know how true Uber it rings. I mean, I guess I've seen both sides of it. Okay, wait, hold okay. on. Let's take a quick okay. break. We'll come back Absolutely. and we'll talk about this really interesting dynamics between African-American communities and Chinese communities or Asian for that matter because you're talking about Rodney King and I'm thinking back to the riot days Hans, and We're going to have to talk about all that stuff, right? Okay. Yes. Okay. We will be back. Don't go away. Okay. It's a very important conversation. You know, one of the beautiful things about meeting people for having conversations on radio, especially K2H, is the connectivity that you find in different people. And today I have a wonderful guest who's been on before talking about the moon cycle. But today, Natasha's here to talk about her, her <laughs> and her connection to me in a strange way through, um, African-American history and Chinese-American history, which I will unpack slowly, but also in light of coming Juneteenth and also just being an African-American woman in Hawaii and what that means. So that's a lot I threw out there, but uh, let's see where it flows and welcome, welcome Natasha Durden to K2H again.
1: Hi, good afternoon. Thank you for having me.
0: Natasha, you know, it's so strange in this COVID world that I've met you and I feel like I've known you for a while, but we've only met each other virtually. That I feel the
1: same. I feel the exact same way. It's kind of funny how personalities kind of connect. But I think when you're out there and you have your people and you meet your people, it 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 comes together. So that's kind of what it is. We all have our people out there. It's just meeting each other, and once we meet each other, everything flows. So I totally yeah. feel what you're willing to do.
0: Yeah. Yeah. No, I, and thank you for this because I know this is a hard time for you. You are um, having family issues and you're in California. No, are you in California? You're in LA,
1: California. I'm still here in California. Yes, it is. It's triple digits, (laughs) but I'm in California. Yes.
0: Okay. Okay. So just to let people know that we are talking, you know, across the oceans, but we're connected here in in spirit and in womanhood and I wanted to talk to you where do we begin you know because originally I wanted to talk about your work you know working in the in the prisons which is really interesting Well, maybe we'll get to that but somehow let's talk you know what intrigued me the first time is that you once said when you had when you were pregnant with your son you said you needed to find a place where you could bring him up in, in, a, in a world, well, let's let you iterate that. How, what did you say about why you chose Hawaii for a place to grow up for your son? Well, I moved to Hawaii, I think in
1: 94, 95. I was only here, I'm gonna say here, because I still live there for five years. I managed to, um, I married a man who was in the Navy and um, finished my degree. He was never home. I finished my degree. I had a full-time job working and I fell in love with Hawaii immediately. And um, a lot of female military spouses hate it. They stay in their bubble. They don't explore. They don't meet anyone local. They don't try the food. They stay in that little radius of the commissary, the exchange, and that's pretty much it. They don't do anything. Why do you think that is? Fear fear because with my, with my, um, my other job, I, I, um, we'll get to that. That's a whole (laughs) episode. Um, it it's fear. And, um, I think a lot of, um, people that come here and I'm non people of color, they become the disenfranchised group. And it, it, I think it throws them for a loop um, but I fell in love with the place immediately. And I think the reason it helped me is because I started working with locals immediately. And they were the ones that showed me the islands. They were the ones that showed me the real Hawaii, not the ones that you see on TV with the luau and the, yeah. the other stuff. They showed me the real, you know, how the islands really are. And um, I fell in love with it. So when it was time for me to leave in 98, after I graduated, I was devastated. What were you studying? I, I was, um, educational psychology. Okay, cool. Yes. I was devastated, but I knew it was time for me to go move back to California. My husband was stationed in San Diego. So I moved to Rancho Cucamonga and Rancho Cucamonga. It looks the way it sounds.
0: <laughs> <laughs> say, the is
1: that? <laughs> it's a lot more developed now, but I was in the middle of a desert. It was, uh, there was a shopping center across the street. There's always a target. And, um, Thank I was God God God. in the middle, there was, there was a, a townhouse complex and the shopping center and that was it. And about two months after I came back to California, I discovered I, I was pregnant and I was like, Oh damn. <laughs> oh, darn, <laughs> <Yeah. Okay>. <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> And, um, and you know, I I had no plans on 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 getting pregnant. It just it kind of happened.
0: Yeah. So, um, <laughs> a spiritual thing. It, it
1: just <laughs> it just kinda happened. So um I knew, I knew, you know, and, and, and I dealt with a difficult pregnancy. Oh. So I I remember when I was delivering him. And I was in the delivery room and I saw this beautiful, beautiful being that I created. And I wanted him to have the best life possible. And he was a boy. I mean, it didn't matter if it was a boy or a girl. All I knew is that I needed to get back to Hawaii. That was it. I needed to get back to Hawaii. Um, And Hawaii does create, there are many challenges but I knew I needed to raise him there. And the reason, the main reason there is because I wanted to raise a free black boy. I wanted him to be able to not have any issues with the police or being out at night or just being him, you know, um, or just being pulled over or, or, or accosted or stopped just for being a black male. And that was my main intention. I also had other intentions because I had, I made wonderful friends here and wonderful connections, but I wanted him to be able to be free and, and just be himself and grow. Okay. and. We came back about, he was almost two, and I was able, he was able to have that
0: experience. So let's, let's put that on pause because that's a huge, that's huge. Because first of all, me Mm -hmm. growing up Asian American, first of all, you know, when I have kids, that's not the first thing that comes to my mind, right? I don't think about the potential dangers of my offsprings. Mm -hmm. So this puts a very specific thing on on, on your community and what that means and where you're coming from that, that forces you to think about these things in, in your major decisions in life of where to live and thrive. And this is just, it's so understated. So can, we, can you go a little bit back further, like maybe how you grew up and what shaped you and how these things perpetuated this kind of dangers or potential dangers? Yeah.
1: I was fortunate. I grew up in Ladera Heights. And um, if anybody, you know, knows that their Heights, it's, I, I had, I grew up in a very wonderful neighborhood. I had a very wonderful life growing up and um, they called it the Black Beverly Hills. <laughs> you Look it up. It's so yeah. I grew up, I grew up very, um, I don't want to say sheltered, but I knew what was out there. And right around 92, I believe it was Um, around the time it was the Rodney King verdict. We always heard about police brutality and everything, but the Rodney King verdict put everything in perspective. And to watch that video of how the police were brutalizing this man, he was already on the sidewalk and they were taking turns beating him with their batons and brutalizing him, um, that was huge. That was my first, I think you hear about it. I had a father that grew up in the South And he would tell me things that he experienced. And I had a mother who grew up in the South and things that she experienced. And that that was all oral history. And I was able to see things for myself. And I was probably 20, maybe 20, when I saw it. And the older people in my life, the elders in my life, they were like, this is what's been, this is what happens in the South. This is what's going on. But I was able to look at it and it was, it was terrifying it so was terrifying. You
0: knew this history, you know, yes. uh, this this the suppression and, and and you know the, the legacy of all this, but seeing it and having that impact that, that changed things for you. Is that what you're saying? It
1: changed things for me. And I remember I was actually waiting for the verdict to happen and I had to go to work. And I said, Well, I'll hear about it on the radio or I'll have a friend that'll you know that'll call me at work. This was before cell phones, before the internet. Oh, but it
0: wasn't that long ago. What? No, we didn't have cell phones in '92. Oh gosh, yeah,
1: right. <laughs> it was crazy, <laughs> huh? We had beepers. <laughs> oh yeah, I had one of those. <laughs> we had beepers. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. Okay. A okay, so, you're
1: right, you're right. We didn't have cell phones, so and we had an answering machines. So you didn't know what went, went on until you got home and checked your answer machine with the full cassette tape. So <laughs> I knew that I would eventually hear about the verdict. And I get to work, and my boss is like, "Go home." And I lived close enough where I was able to walk to work. I worked at a Chinese restaurant at the time. And I my, I, you know, my life has been so interesting. So he goes, Mr. Ma, he goes, he goes, go home. And I'm like, well, why? He goes, they just announced the verdict. Everything that is happening may, be, may kind of come up towards us. So go home. And that's what I did. I went home. Wait, so
0: your Chinese boss at the Chinese restaurant that you worked yeah. at also recognized the the potential danger that this was Absolutely. going to spark.
1: Wow. Absolutely. I get into work and he told, he go home. So I didn't think it was as serious as it was, you know, and I, I knew the verdict was wrong. I knew it was incorrect, but I did not know what would happen in my neighborhood. I didn't know what was going to happen in LA. I did not know it would be that big. As in and
0: your it, lifetime, you haven't experienced anything no. kind of so explosive in your own immediate vicinity, right?
1: Not at all. My parents told me about the, the Watts riots before they, yeah. they experienced the Watts riots. And, um, I heard the stories and everything, but I did not think it was going to come as close as it did. Okay. So, um, it happened and it gave me a lot of time to think. So that was when the, the people in my generation, we were able to have this dialogue about what was happening and what was going on. And it really affected me. It hurt, it hurt me. Yeah. So, um, and you know, as the years go by, you see how things were with black men, black people, yeah. but primarily black men and their relationship with the police, with law enforcement. Mm-hmm. And um, it scared me, it yeah. scared me. And I think I, for me, I had a little bit of, uh, I don't know what to even call it. I wasn't as fearful for myself as I was for the black men in my life. Like my brother, my brother experienced it firsthand. So there were things he experienced, the police following him home from work, the, the police following him, him from the store, not knowing, why do you live here? You don't live in this house. This is in your neighborhood. Following him home and him being on the corner handcuffed. And so oh. my parents came home to say, this is our son. He lives here. This is our home. So I saw this through my brother and there've been other experiences where the police have followed him home. And I was, I was sad for him. My heart ached for him. Mm -hmm. And I honestly didn't realize this was what he was going to encounter for a good part of his life. You know, it, this kind of, it's kind of how it was. And, you know, I had a father who parents whom taught us how to surrender to the police. If the police pull you over or stop you, you stop. You don't ask any questions.
0: So growing up, your parents actually had this kind of, you know, sit down, talk with you. You grew up knowing that those are kind of the ways you dealt with potential situations with the police? Absolutely. My wow. father,
1: I remember him very vividly teaching my brother how to stand, oh. how not to make any sudden movements, how to get on the knees with his hands behind his back, and submit to the police.
0: That, yeah. That's crazy. You know, sorry, for so for yeah. my oh, perspective,
1: no. right? I understand. I understand. You know,
0: being from a very insular Chinese-American, well, you know, my dad's from Hong Kong and my mom's from the States, but I, I grew up in, in partly in San Francisco and part in Hong Kong, but I've never come to, I and mean, I think this is the problem with the Afro-Asian tension that's going on now, is that we don't understand each other's history enough and we're not willing to see or listen to it. And we think, okay, you know, we see like all the, the bad experiences like, oh, I was robbed. So I have this, uh, you know, discriminating perspective on, on, on certain people. So then it kind of digs deeper and deeper into that perpetual kind of reinforcing, Mm -hmm. like how you feel, you want to feel about another community. Mm So, um, it, it. I wanted to go back to you working at the Chinese restaurant, if you don't mind. (laughs) Because, you know, I I told you I'm doing a documentary on the Chinese in the South. And and I was reading some research and, you know, the Chinese stores um, back then had hired uh, black um, errand boys or whatever to do their work. And this is like in the thirties. Absolutely. So there's a really interesting relationship um, within the two communities and what it reveals about the larger white community.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. So talk
0: about that experience. Why do you think they hired you? And what was, <laughs> how did you feel about
1: that? You know, I know why they hired me. They needed a black face and that was okay. Cause we were in a, you know, primarily, you know um, upper middle-class black neighborhood and that's fine. And I had a friend, I was working. I was actually, this. believe it or not I was working for Guns N' Roses. <laughs> what? That, <laughs> and okay. I, I was working for guns and roses and we're doing, a friend, hmm? we're doing what the whole fan like the, the fan stuff that came <laughs> in and whenever <laughs> there was an award show um we were like the, the seat fillers we were coming and when guns and roses would come out they'd have us in the pit we'd have to scream and pretend that we were like loving <laughs> the show that kind of stuff okay. so um my friend called and she goes um do you think you want another job and I'm like, I like money, so what are you talking about? She goes, there's this Chinese restaurant and my sister works there and she has to leave. And I go, where is it? And she told me, I said, I know that place that's down the street from my house. She goes, well, come in later on today and talk to the managers and you're good. So I get, I, there, the, Thomas and, there, that wasn't, Thomas and Francis Ma. I went in, I spoke to them for about five minutes. They are like, you're hired. And I'm like, okay, when do I start? So that lasted for seven years and they treated me like family. I love working with them. I love-
0: Wait, wait, hold that thought because this idea of treating like family, I'm skeptical because I hear that a lot, but I don't know how- True. It rings. I mean, I guess I've seen both sides of it. Okay, wait, hold on. Let's take a quick break. We'll come back and we'll talk about this really interesting dynamics between African-American communities and Chinese communities or Asian for that matter, because you're talking about Rodney King. And I'm thinking back to the riot days, Natasha Harlan. And we're going to have to talk about all that stuff, right? Okay. Yes. Okay. We will be back. Don't go away. It is a very important conversation. You know, one of the beautiful things about meeting people for having conversations on radio, especially K2H, is the connectivity that you find in different people. And today I have a wonderful guest who's been on before talking about the moon cycle, but today Natasha's here to talk about her, her, (laughs) and her connection to me in a strange way through, um, African-American history and Chinese American history, which I will unpack slowly, but also in light of coming Juneteenth and also just being an African-American woman in Hawaii and what that means. So that's a lot I threw out there, but uh, let's see where it flows and welcome, welcome Natasha Durden to K2H again.
1: Hi, good afternoon. Thank you for having me.
0: Natasha, you know, it's so strange in this COVID world that I've met you and I feel like I've known you for a while but we've only (laughs) met each other virtually. That I, feel the same.
1: I feel the exact same way. It's kind of funny how personalities kind of connect. But I think when you're out there and you have your people and you meet your people, it, it, it comes together. So that's kind of what it is. We all have our people out there. It's just meeting each other. And once we meet each other, everything flows. So I totally yeah. feel what you're willing to do.
0: Yeah. Yeah. No, I, and thank you for this because I know this is a hard time for you. You are um, having family issues and you're in California. No, are you in California? You're in LA, California.
1: I'm still here in California. Yes, it is. It's triple digits, (laughs) but I'm in California. Yes.
0: Okay. Okay. So just to let people know that we are talking, you know, across the oceans, but we're connected here in in spirit and in womanhood and I wanted to talk to you where do we begin you know because originally I wanted to talk about your work you know working in the in the prisons which is really interesting Well, maybe we'll get to that but somehow let's talk you know what intrigued me the first time is that you once said when you had when you were pregnant with your son you said you needed to find a place where you could bring him up in, in, a, in a world, well, let's let you iterate that. How, what did you say about why you chose Hawaii for a place to grow up for your son? Well, I moved to
1: Hawaii, I think in 94, 95. I was only here, I'm gonna say here, because I still live there for five years. I managed to, um, I married a man who was in the Navy and um, finished my degree. He was never home. I finished my degree. I had a full-time job working and I fell in love with Hawaii immediately. And um, a lot of mil- female military spouses hate it. They stay in their bubble. They don't explore. They don't meet anyone local. They don't try the food. They stay in that little radius of the commissary, the exchange, and that's pretty much it. They don't do Why? anything. Why do you think that is? Fear fear because with my, with my, um, my other job, I, I, um, we'll get to that. That's a whole (laughs) episode. Um, it it's fear. And, um, I think a lot of, um, people that come here and I'm non people of color, they become the disenfranchised group. And it, it, I think it throws them for a loop um, but I fell in love with the place immediately. And I think the reason it helped me is because I started working with locals immediately. And they were the ones that showed me the islands. They were the ones that showed me the real Hawaii, not the ones that you see on TV with the luau and the, yeah. the other stuff. They showed me the real you know, how the islands really are. And um I fell in love with it. So when it was time for me to leave in ninety eight, after I graduated, I was devastated. What were you studying? I, I was, um, educational psychology. Okay, cool. Yes. I was devastated, but I knew it was time for me to go move back to California. My husband was stationed in San Diego. So I moved to Rancho Cucamonga and Rancho Cucamonga. It looks the way it sounds. (laughs) 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 It's a lot more developed now, but I was in the middle of a desert. It was, uh, there was a shopping center across the street. There's always a target. And, um, I was in the middle. There was, there was a a townhouse complex and the shopping center. And that was it. And about two months after I came back to California, I discovered I was pregnant and I was like, Oh damn, darn. (laughs) 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 And, um, and, you know, I, I had no plans on, on, on getting pregnant. It just, it kind of happened. Yeah. So, um,
0: it that happened. Spiritual thing. It just, it just, no. just kind of
1: happened. So, um, I knew, I knew, you know, and, and I dealt with a difficult pregnancy. Oh. So I, I remember when I was delivering him. And I was in the delivery room and I saw this beautiful, beautiful being that I created. And I wanted him to have the best life possible. And he was a boy. I mean, it didn't matter if it was a boy or a girl. All I knew is that I needed to get back to Hawaii. That was it. I needed to get back to Hawaii. Um, And Hawaii does create, there are many challenges, but I knew I needed to raise him there. And the reason, the main reason there is because I wanted to raise a free black boy. I wanted him to be able to not have any issues with the police or being out at night or just being him, you know, um, or just being pulled over or, or, or accosted or stopped just for being a black male. And that was my main intention. I also had other intentions because I had, I made wonderful friends here and wonderful connections, but I wanted him to be able to be free and, and just be himself and grow. Okay. And We came back about, he was almost two, and I was able, he was able to have that experience.
0: So let's, let's put that on pause because that's a huge, that's huge. Because first of all, me Mm -hmm. growing up Asian American, first of all, you know, when I have kids, that's not the first thing that comes to my mind, right? I don't think about the potential dangers of my offsprings. Mm -hmm. So this puts a very specific thing on 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 your community and what that means and where you're coming from that that forces you to think about these things in in your major decisions in life of where to live and thrive and this is just it's so understated so can we can you go a little bit back further like maybe how you grew up and what shaped you and how these things perpetuated this kind of dangers or potential dangers yeah I was
1: fortunate I grew up in Ladera Heights And um, if anybody, you know, knows the their Heights, it's, I I had, I grew up in a very wonderful neighborhood. I had a very wonderful life growing up and um, they called it the Black Beverly Hills. (laughs) You look it up. It's so I grew up, I grew up very, um, I don't want to say sheltered, but I knew what was out there. And right around 92, I believe it was Um, around the time it was the Rodney King verdict. We always heard about police brutality and everything, but the Rodney King verdict put everything in perspective. And to watch that video of how the police were brutalizing this man, he was already on the sidewalk and they were taking turns beating him with their batons and brutalizing him, um, that was huge. That was my first I think you hear about it. I had a father that grew up in the South and he would tell me things that he experienced. And I had a mother who grew up in the South and things that she experienced. And that that was all oral history. And I was able to see things for myself. And I was probably 20, maybe 20 when I saw it. And the older people in my life, the elders in my life, they were like, this is what's been, this is what happens in the South. This is what's going on but I was able to look at it and it was it was terrifying it was terrifying you
0: knew this history you know uh, this this the suppression and 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 you know the the legacy of all this but seeing it and having that impact that that changed things for you is that what you're saying it changed
1: things for me and I remember I was actually waiting for the verdict to happen and I had to go to work and I said, well, I'll hear about it on the radio or I'll have a friend that'll, you know, that'll call me at work. This was before cell phones, before the internet. Oh, but it
0: wasn't that long ago. Wasn't no, we didn't have cell phones have- in 92. Oh gosh. Yeah. Right. <laughs> it, was- it was crazy. Huh? We had beepers. <laughs> oh yeah, I had one of
1: those. <laughs> we had beepers. Yeah, 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 yeah. And we had an answering machines. So you didn't know what went, went on until you got home and checked your answer machine with the full cassette tape. So <laughs> I knew that I would eventually hear about the verdict and I get to work and my boss is like, go home. And I lived close enough where I was able to walk to work. I worked at a Chinese restaurant at the time. I and love my, that. I, you know my life has been so interesting so he goes Mr. Ma he goes he goes go home and I'm like well why he goes they just announced the verdict everything that is happening maybe have may kind of come up towards us so go home and that's what I did I went home
0: wait so your your Chinese boss at the Chinese restaurant that you work that yeah. also recognized the the potential danger that this was absolutely. going to spark
1: absolutely, wow. absolutely. I get into work and he told he go home so I didn't think it was as serious as it was, you know? And I, I knew the verdict was wrong. I knew it was incorrect, but I did not know what would happen in my neighborhood. I didn't know what was gonna happen in LA. I did not know it would be that big. Because in and your
0: lifetime, you haven't experienced anything no. kind of so explosive in your own immediate vicinity, right?
1: Not at all. My parents told me about the, the Watts riots before. They yeah. They experienced the Watts riots. And um, I heard the stories and everything, but I did not think it was gonna come as close as it did. Okay. So um, it happened and it gave me a lot of time to think. So that was when the the people in my generation, we were able to have this dialogue about what was happening and what was going on. And it really affected me, it hurt, it hurt me. Yeah. So, um, and you know, as the years go by, you see, how things were with black men, black people, but primarily black men and their relationship with the police, with law enforcement. Mm -hmm. And um, it scared me, it scared me. And I think I, for me, I had a little bit of, uh, I don't know what to even call it. I wasn't as fearful for myself as I was for the black men in my life. Like my brother, my brother experienced it firsthand. So there were things he experienced, the police following him home from work, the, experience, the police is following him, him from the store, not knowing, why do you live here? You don't live in this house. This isn't your neighborhood. Following him home and him being on the corner handcuffed. until oh. so my parents came home to say, this is our son. He lives here. This is our home. So I saw this through my brother. And there have been other experiences where the police have followed him home. And I was I was sad for him. My heart ached for him. And I honestly didn't realize this was what he was going to encounter for a good part of his life. You know, it this kind of is kind of how it was. And, you know, I had a father who, parents whom taught us how to surrender to the police. If the police pull you over or stop you, you stop. You don't ask any questions.
0: So growing up, your parents actually had this kind of you know, sit down, talk with you. You grew up knowing that those are kind of the ways you dealt with potential situations with the police? Absolutely.
1: My wow. father, I remember him very vividly teaching my brother how to stand, oh. how not to make any sudden movements, how to get on the knees with his hands behind his back and submit to the police.
0: That, yeah. That's crazy. You know, sorry, for, so for yeah. my perspective, oh, right? I understand. I understand. You know, being from a very insular Chinese American well you know my dad's from Hong Kong and my mom's from the states but I, I grew up in, in partly in San Francisco and part in Hong Kong but I've never come to and then I think this is the problem with the Afro-Asian tension that's going on now is that we don't understand each other's history enough and we're not willing to see or listen to it Absolutely, and we think I agree. okay you know we see like all the the bad experiences like oh I was robbed so I have this uh, you know, discriminating perspective on 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 certain people. So then it kind of digs deeper and deeper into that perpetual kind of reinforcing, like how you feel you want to feel about another community. Mm-hmm. So, um, it it I wanted to go back to you working at the Chinese restaurant, if you don't mind, <laughs> because you know I I told you I'm doing a documentary on the Chinese in the South, and and yeah. I was reading some research, and you know the Chinese stores um, back then had hired uh black um errand boys or whatever to do their work and this is like in the 30s absolutely so there's a really interesting relationship um within the two communities and what it reveals about the larger white community
1: absolutely Absolutely. so talk
0: about that experience why do you think they hired you and what was how did you feel about that
1: (laughs) you know i know why they hired me they needed a black face and that was okay because we were in a you know primarily you know um upper middle class black neighborhood and that's fine and i had a friend i was working i was actually this is, believe it or not i was working for guns N roses. What? <laughs> and roses okay. I, I was working for guns and roses and we're doing, a friend, the, hmm? we're doing what the whole fan, like the, the fan stuff that came <laughs> in and whenever there was an award show Um, We were like the the seat fillers. We were coming and when Guns N' Roses would come out, they'd have us in the pit. We'd have to scream and pretend that we were like (laughs) loving the show, that kind of stuff. So um, my friend called and she goes, "Um, do you think you want another job? And I'm like, I like money. So what are you talking about? She goes, there's this Chinese restaurant and my sister works there and she has to leave. And I go, where is it? And she told me, I said, I know that place that's down the street from my house. She goes, well, come in later on today and talk to the managers and you're good. So I get, I, Thomas and there, that wasn't, Thomas and Francis Ma, I went in, I spoke to them for about five minutes. They're like, you're hired. And I'm like, okay, when do I start? So that lasted for seven years and they treated me like family. I love working with them. I love- Wait, hold
0: that thought because this idea of treating like family, I'm skeptical because I hear that a lot, but I don't know how- True. It rings. I mean, I guess I've seen both sides of it. Okay, wait, hold on. Let's take a quick break. We'll come back and we'll talk about this really interesting dynamics between African American communities and Chinese communities or Asian for that matter, because you're talking about Rodney King. And I'm thinking back to the riot days, Natasha Harlan. And we're going to have to talk about all that stuff, right? Okay. Yes. Okay. We will be back. Don't go away. It is a very important conversation.